Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you've decided to worship with us this morning. As the Hub City Church, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, get plugged into serving, or learn how you can get connected through community groups and men's and women's ministries, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. Our spring schedule will be released this week, so be sure to check the app or social media for that so you can be up to date on all events going on leading up to Easter. The Lord has been so faithful in continuing to grow our church body. To help accommodate those looking for seating, it would be super helpful to keep end seats open so our ushers are able to easily find seats for those coming into the service. As always, kids are welcome in service, and we have coloring sheets available in the back for them. We also have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. Hey guys, good morning. My name is Tad Anderson. I am the uh, lead teaching pastor here uh, at the Hub City Church, and we are so glad you're here to worship Jesus with us this morning. Uh, really, the only announcement that I have for you is that um, our spring schedule is going to get posted this week uh, because uh, we are entering spring. So when you, it may have felt a little bit still like winter when you came in, but when you leave, it should be, feel a little bit more like spring. So uh, we have a lot going on this spring. So uh, coming up on March 9th, we will do our uh, annual spring work day. We've got a lot of things that need to get straightened up and uh, tightened up before uh, our, our Easter weekend. So uh, we'd love for you to join us in that if you're handy in any way or if you can, you know, I don't know, use a paintbrush, then you're welcome to join us for that because there is plenty to be done, uh, as there always is. Uh, we also have our uh, big Easter weekend, March uh, 29th through the 31st. We'll have a good Friday night of worship. Uh, we will have our Saturday Easter in the Park outreach that we do in conjunction, uh, in partnership really, with the city of Crestview every single year. Uh, that event has been posted, and that's always a great opportunity for us to get out and serve our city, love our city, uh, get into gospel conversations if we have opportunity. Uh, and then we'll have Easter Sunday, as we always do here at our building. Uh, it's a really fun, celebratory time. Uh, we'll just have a really clear gospel presentation, so we'd love for you to invite uh, friends and family to that, and we will have a big um, Easter lunch out in the backyard. We always have an egg hunt for the kids and everything. It's a really fun time. Usually there's some kind of smoked meat, so that's always really great. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's coming up. And we'll do our uh, first ever spring downtown feeding outreach. So those that we've been doing for Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, this is the first year that we're going to be doing uh, one of those outreaches quarterly. And so our spring 
outreach downtown will be uh, tentatively April 19th, and then we'll be rolling towards summer when we have May Play Day. It's another fellowship we do every year in the backyard. So we've got a lot of good stuff to, uh, to do together, lots of fun things to do. Hope you'll plan uh, to join us for all of those. We will give more clear details as we get closer to each one. Uh, all right, well, we are in week two of our new sermon series through the New Testament book of 1 John that is largely about what it means to abide in Christ. Uh, as Christians, you see, we don't think that believing the gospel is something that we only do once at the beginning of our faith, but rather uh, that it's something we continue to need to do day in and day out. We need to be in close fellowship and communion with Jesus through his word, by his spirit, and with his people until his return, at which point we will have uh, the consummate joy of seeing him and, and being with him face to face forever. But until then, after our initial belief, our initial moment of placing our faith in Christ and being justified, Every day after that, our faith and trust in Jesus expresses itself in our ongoing abiding or our drawing upon the life that he gives us, which is the process by which we are progressively sanctified or by which we become more like him and in step with his gospel. And so... <clears throat> As we move through John's first letter to the church, we're going to see some really strong, uh, clear truths that he gives that are going to help us understand what genuine abiding looks like. Uh, John is doing this, we read last week, because he genuinely wants the church to know the real historic Jesus, but also because in the surrounding culture, both in the first century for him as well as for us today, there are false teachers who are preaching a counterfeit gospel with an alternate Jesus. Uh, this is incredibly dangerous, spiritually speaking, because if you get like, you know, a knockoff pair of Ray-Bans uh, for $15, that's awesome, right? Because you get to look like you're wearing Ray-Bans and you didn't pay 150 bucks. But if we get a knockoff Jesus then we get a bogus gospel and we receive none of the amazing benefits that God offers his covenant people. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, restored fellowship with him and his people and eternal life. We don't want to miss all that, right? We don't want to miss all that. So last week we saw in verses one through four of chapter one, uh, that first things first, we need the Bible. The Bible is the single, it's God's single authoritative source of self-revelation. And so if we are going to know him and have the life that he offers, it's going to be through his word. It's going to be through his word. There's no other way. There's no other source of inerrant sufficient truth on which we can stake our lives. But today we're going to move ahead in chapter 1 into what John is going to say is the message. The message that he heard with his own two ears from the word of life himself, that is Jesus Christ. So let's read it, and we'll pray together, 
and we'll begin. 1 John chapter 1, we're picking it up in verse 5. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Well, Father, as always, we thank you that while we were still sinners, you loved us first, and you loved us as we have sung about all morning, God. You have loved us by sending your son Jesus on a very intentional mission to live the life that we could not and to die the death that we deserved. And God, thank you, not only for those aspects of the gospel, but for the resurrection that seals the deal and makes it indisputable that Jesus really is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do, namely to save us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And now, Lord, as we get back into your inspired word to the Apostle John, I pray that you would continue to do the work that I cannot through your spirit. Lord, draw men and women to yourself. By your incredible kindness, lead people to repentance this morning. And God, please make this body of believers to increasingly be one who in humility lives and walks in the light. God, thank you that we now have nothing to fear in coming before you, but rather have the certainty that we can come into your presence and receive not judgment, but mercy. God, we all need mercy. I pray that you would make those truths clear this morning. God, I pray, help me to say everything that you would have me to say. And God, nothing that you would not have me to say. That I might decrease. And that love and trust in you would increase. In Jesus' name, for his glory, I pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, we've got a lot to cover this morning, so let's just get right to it. When you read in the Bible an absolute statement about the essential being of God, you should stop 
and make sure that you understand it. Because it's pretty rare for God to describe himself with a one-word description as striking, and it should get our wheels turning about what it means. Okay. And in verse 5, that's what we see. John says, this is the message that we heard from Jesus, and now we relay to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is obviously uh, a metaphor in some sense, because light in a literal scientific sense is electromagnetic radiation that falls within a certain wavelength that our eyes can visually perceive. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? And obviously we know that this phrase, God is light, is not meant to be a minimizing statement, shrinking him down into something so basic and impersonal. It's meant to be a summarizing statement that encapsulates something much greater about him. So let's get a working definition of the light that God is biblically. God is characterized as light in Scripture to communicate the radiance of his identity and the purity of his character. Now, I'm not trying to go all Bill Nye the science guy on you this morning, for one, because old Bill Nye is a big-time atheist, but also because I'm not trying to bore you to death. But hang with me, Tad the science lad, for just a minute, because... uh, (laughs) I think this is fascinating and helpful. Scientifically speaking, wherever there is light, there is some kind, some amount of heat. And where there is heat, there is energy. And suffice it to say that scientists, smart as they are, don't really understand what energy is. If you ask them, they'll tell you. Well, E equals mc squared, which is just an equation. It doesn't tell us what energy is. It's just the equation for energy. Mass times the speed of light squared. And practically speaking, energy is the ability to do work. Right? But if you want to really know what that is then things get pretty existential pretty quick, don't they? In order to know what light is, you have to figure out what energy is. And if you want to know what energy is, you need to know where it comes from. Nothing comes from nowhere, right? Got to have a source. Well, interestingly enough, in the creation narrative in Genesis 1, hopefully you know, that we learn a lot about the essence of who God is in these opening words of Scripture, but we, we also learn about God's relationship to light almost right out the gate. Let me read it to you for sake of review. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Now, here's where the pieces are hopefully going to come together. 
As we keep reading, we, we learn that when God says, let there be light, this was not the moment that he created the sun or any other source of light that we would recognize today. He doesn't like hit the light on his iPhone or something, right? He doesn't create sources of light until day four. Skipping down a few verses, verse 13, it says, and there was evening, there was morning, the third day. So we're past the third day now. And it says, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let, the, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And it, go, it, just, it goes on from here, right? This is the sun and the moon and the stars. Are you, are you tracking here? Okay, light, light pre-existed the lights that we know in nature. Well, if we, if we jump from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, listen to what it says is going to happen in the new earth when all things are made new. Revelation 21 It says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For what? The glory of God. (laughs) The glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. So... In one sense, while you, know, you can say that God is light is a metaphorical statement, it's also a literal statement. Because God is the originating source of the entire universe, and thus of energy and light itself. It all comes from Him. Revelation 21 tells us that light is literally the emanation of God's glory. (laughs) My mind was blown thinking through this. Light is the emanation of God's glory. And what is God's glory? God's glory is his manifested or revealed holiness. That is his majestic preeminence and separateness, his differentness, his exaltedness over and above every created person and thing. And so if God is light, and the scientific definition of light is this natural agent that stimulates sight, then stay with me. Don't check out here. See the connection. This is why God says first, before anything else, let there be light. It's because God desires to be seen. As one great theologian says, it is God's nature to reveal himself as it is the property of light to shine. It's God's nature to reveal himself as it's the property of light to shine. This is why the first piece of our definition for the light of God is the radiance of his identity. Here's what that means. It means that while God is invisible spirit, that does not mean that he wants to keep himself hidden. 
He does not want who he is to be a mystery. Famous atheist Richard Dawkins was once asked in an interview, Richard, what will you say to God if you have to stand before him one day in judgment and he asks you why you refused to give him the recognition that he deserves? To which Dawkins replied, I would ask him, Sir, why did you go to such lengths to hide yourself? Church, God has not gone to great lengths to hide himself. He has gone to unfathomable lengths to reveal himself. He's just... So majestic, so fearful, so awe-inducing, so much bigger than our finite minds can possibly comprehend that it takes a seemingly infinite universe, galaxy upon galaxy with innumerable stars, an unexplorable depth of ocean, a giant ball of fire hotter than we can possibly imagine that gives light and heat to all of the life on earth, great white sharks, Siberian tigers, redwood trees, sunsets, the multifaceted beauty of climates and seasons, hot and cold, earthquakes, hurricanes, butterflies, the most delicate and intricate of flowers, the miracle of childbirth, the sacred sexual intimacy between a man and a woman, a perfectly grilled state, chocolate, a glass of a good glass of wine, music, dancing, a nap after church on Sunday, and on and on I could go. God is light means, first of all, that God wants to be seen and that it is in his nature to reveal himself in thousands of ways via his creation that is a direct extension of who he is and what he is like. Romans 1 says, what can be known about God is plain Because God has shown it to us for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So we are without excuse. Not to mention Jesus. Jesus shows us perfectly who God is. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. So God is characterized as light in scripture to communicate the radiance of his identity. And also light, light also communicates the purity of God's character. In other words, not only has God revealed himself to be God, he has also revealed himself to be good. And just as there is no light without God, there is no good without God. As God is making all of creation each day, it says, he saw that what he made was good. Because apart from the fall into sin and brokenness. God does not make anything that's not good. 
because everything he makes is like himself, right? Psalm 16, 2 says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. James 1, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And to get more specific, when we say that God is good, we mean that he is morally perfect, righteous, and pure. There is no darkness in him. That is, he does not sin or do evil to anyone ever. Ever. Time would not allow us to go through the technicalities of God's perfection and moral goodness because the entirety of the Mosaic law is is expounding upon moral goodness from a human standpoint, but it's a, a lack of pride, a lack of idolatry, a faithfulness to all that's true and right, an unwavering committedness to the good of others, a joyful contentment in you know what one has opposed to desiring the blessings of others, an unwillingness to take what does not belong to us, an unwillingness to harm others with ill motives. These are just from the Ten Commandments, but it goes on from there. God is light. God's lightness is the radiance of his identity and the purity of his character. God is God, and God is good. But now from here, we've got to move on, and we've got to move relatively quick. John, in uh, verses 6 through 10, begins to talk about the implications of God being light for the way that we are to live. And so we need to recognize the illumination of God's nature allows us to not only see Him clearly, but to see ourselves rightly in relation to Him. Okay. love how John Stott says it. He says, truth, like light in Scripture, has moral content. We are not just to know the truth, we are to do it. Just as we are not only to see the light, but to walk in it. We talk a lot about this here, so I'm not going to spend too terribly long on it, but the logical way that we can deduce from Scripture that God uh, intended for us in the beginning to walk in relation to Him was that we, as human beings, were to live faithfully as his image bearers for his glory, right? Again, this starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God's intention for man was that man would see him, And know him for who he is. And for a man out of the relationship with and likeness to God to live in such a way on the earth that reflected the goodness of God. Okay, Having dominion over the earth, that is cultivating it, subduing it, learning how to make it flourish and be productive, creating a good and godly society where the perfect holiness of God was manifested in the lives of his people. And again, all of that for the glory of God, for the ongoing revelation of God's goodness overflowing in worship of him. We see this spelled out 
uh, explicitly in a few other places in Scripture. Isaiah 43, God says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So this is the original purpose of man, as the Westminster Confession states, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is why we were created, church. We see Jesus Himself say it this way to His disciples in Matthew 5. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. (laughs) So hopefully I've made this piece abundantly clear. The illumination of God's nature was not only for us to see him clearly, but to see ourselves rightly in relationship to him. But, and this is a big but, we don't get to the end of Genesis 2 and read, and God and man lived happily ever after the end. No, something terrible happens. Sin comes into the picture. Adam and Eve, the representatives of all mankind, they derail the God-glorifying purpose for humanity. And everything good about God's universe is tarnished. It's marred. It begins to break down and not operate as it was intended. And from that point on, every person ever begins to live in such a way that they fall short of the glory of God. They don't seek after God as they were intended. They don't love and worship God as they were created to. And this inevitably makes a huge mess to summarize it, okay? It seems to get worse and worse. Pride, idolatry, lies, murder, immorality, infidelity, conflict, war, brokenness, in short, brokenness. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the next verse says, It grieved God. It grieved God to his heart. So, sin which is a forgetfulness of God that leads to a moral darkness, becomes a very real, very evident part of history. You don't need to look too far in history to see it. Maybe you can just check the news from this week. And maybe you know that Jesus is the eventual answer to the problem of human sin, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes when we get ready to close. But before we do, we see in our text that John makes these three statements, these three if-we-say statements about essentially claiming to not be a sinner. He says, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you refuse to recognize the bad news of sin, then you cannot receive the good news of salvation. There were people in John's day, these false teachers, as we've discussed, who were trying to explain away the problem of sin. They would say things like, listen, listen. Your body and your spirit are separate. Your body can be engaged in evil because that's just the world we live in, the physical world. But it's your spirit, your inner being that matters. And you can be inwardly good. Your spirit is purified even if you continue to live a life of moral wickedness, drunkenness, Sexual immorality, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, they were preaching a false, licentious gospel. Do you know what that is? A gospel where grace becomes license to live in debauchery and unfaithfulness while still thinking that they were safe from judgment. And some were even going so far as to say that because they had received Christ, they no longer sinned at all. That is, they were claiming to have become perfect. And listen, sadly, there are people who are continuing to teach like this today. Today. Maybe in our own city. I don't know. Often, here's how they do it. They don't ever get down into the weeds about sin. They just never talk about sin at all. They just ignore it. They call themselves Christian churches, sure. They preach the name of Jesus. They say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They encourage church attendance. You better believe they encourage tithing. They encourage you to join groups and things, right? But all of their teaching is just this happy clappy, empowerment, self-help, you can do it, you can reach your potential and be great, and God will help you fulfill your destiny to be awesome. And that's it. That's the message. That's their message. Almost like mankind doesn't even have much of a problem at all. God's just there to be your genie in a bottle, baby, and bless you and encourage you and how special you are so that you can live your best life now and go to heaven when you die. And John says, no. No. He says, Sin 
is still a very real problem for every single one of us. And if we pretend like it's not, then we're living a lie. And the way that we are to live in view of who God is and in view of our sin is we are to walk in the light, he says. What is walking in the light? Walking in the light is an initially painful path with the purpose of ultimate peace. Walking in the light is an initially painful path with the purpose of initial peace. And I just want to really boil this down now because walking in the light is basically this simple. You ready? It's being honest. It's being honest. It's being honest about who you've been. And it's being honest even about who you continue to be in your sin. This is why it's painful. If we were to take the most polished professing Christian in this room and tell them that we had somehow obtained a record of any and all of their sinful thoughts, words, and actions that they engaged in in the past seven days. And we're going to now put your face up there, and we're going to list those in detail as they occurred on the screen. I want you to imagine how that would feel. We'd probably all feel a combination of sick and terrified. But not sick or terrified enough to make a beeline for the doors immediately and never come back, right? The reality is we all know that God is glorious holy, perfect in moral purity. And not only do we fall short, but we don't even come close to hitting the target. The Bible says that God has written his law on our hearts. That's what we call a conscience. And every single one of our consciences betray us. They tell us that unless there is some miraculous way out of it, We are sinful to the core. And not wanting others to see that is really just an outworking of the deeper reality that we know how fearful it would be to be laid bare in the presence of the living God with whom secrets are impossible. So this is the painful part of walking in the light, being honest. It's uncomfortable to acknowledge our sinful nature, confess our sinful actions, and realize our sin's consequences. Nothing in our flesh thinks, that sounds awesome. That sounds great. I would love to just get how bad I really am out on the table. But John says, if we don't, 
If we're not willing to be real about who we truly are at the heart level, then truth, the truth, is not in us. We're self-deceived, he says. Take note of that part. If we act like we don't have sin, we deceive who? Ourselves. He says it that way because no one else who really knows you is under any illusion that you're perfect. If you want to be sure you're a sinner, just ask your parents, your siblings, or your spouse. I'm sure they'll be glad to hold up a mirror for you. And here's what else the Bible says. It says if you're carrying that around, like if you have never broken down under the weight of your guilt and confessed it to God and to others, then you are a very burdened person. You're a very burdened person. You ever seen one of those little... um, we always used to call them trash bugs. You ever seen one of those? <laughs> you can't really see the bug itself super well. It just looks like a little pile of a little pile of junk walking by, you know, walking around. They're actually, here's the science lad again, they're actually um, the larva stage of the lacewing, which is like a little green fly. And what you'll learn if you look them up is all that piled up stuff, that junk on their backs, it's not trash. It's um, it's a little more morbid than that. It's the dead carcasses of other insects they've killed and eaten, just piled up. Yeah, they're not as cute anymore, are they? And if you've never come clean about your sin, confessed it, been honest about it, it's all just piled up on your back, figuratively speaking. Listen to how David describes what it feels like to be carrying around this unconfessed sin. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I wonder if there is anyone hearing this today who realizes that this is them. If there is, I'd like to tell you something. I've been there. I've been there. I've felt that feeling. I've been under that burden. The hand of God weighing me down, my strength zapped, feeling like I'm just inwardly groaning over my foolishness, the foolishness of how I've acted, how I've lived, how I've not lived, measuring up to God's good standards, trying to smile and knowing it's fake feeling like a dead man walking. If that's you, you don't have to raise your hand. But I want to tell you something that will change your life if you'll let it. You can stop pretending now. 
You can stop pretending now. You can take off the mask and you can let your guard down because God knows that you are a sinner who deserves hell. And so do we. But here's the encouraging part that we see in verses 7 and 9 in our text. Anyone, please don't miss this, anyone who is willing to humbly confess the devastating reality of their pervasive sinfulness will be totally forgiven and graciously cleansed by the blood of Christ. The text says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, let me tell you something. God is not only faithful in the sense that he says he'll forgive you and actually follow through with it. He is faithful. But he's also just. If you confess your sin to God, it is a matter of his justice to forgive you. Like, justice should sound like a scary thing for sinners who are guilty, shouldn't it? It should. But here's the thing. God has already executed the justice that you deserved on Jesus. I'm sorry, let me say that again. Um, God has already executed the justice that you deserved on Jesus. This is why his blood cleanses us. The blood that Jesus spilled in his death on the cross was the payment for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And so when you come to God, and you confess your sin, and you repent for how you have not lived for his glory, he does not look down at you with a scowl. He looks at you with a smile. Because your repentance is not an act of penance. You're not paying for something. It's the moment that you receive the gift of his grace that he so longs to give you. Scripture doesn't tell us primarily to come to God so that we can do something for him. It tells us to come so that he can do something for us. Forgive us. And cleanse us. This is why David says in the rest of Psalm 32, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. That means meditate on that. Therefore, let everyone 
who is godly, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, because surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. That means don't wait. He says, God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Church, all who abide in Christ will walk in the light. Because walking in the light is the initially painful path with the purpose of ultimate peace. The message of the gospel, can I just say this a few more ways? The message of the gospel to sinners is this. If you know you're a sinner, stop running away from God and run to him. And even to those who are already Christians, but who know they have sinned again this week. And to those who perhaps continue to struggle and wrestle and fight against the same besetting sins from which they so desire to be free. Brother or sister, run to Christ today. Run to Christ. Hide yourself in him. For there is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we say we have not sinned, we call God a liar. Don't do that. Don't do that. Confess and forsake your sin and be at peace with God. Be honest and walk in the light. David Snelling mentioned this earlier. In our men's ministry meeting this week, we talked about this quote from R.C. Sproul. It says, The secret the Christian carries around with him is the knowledge that the one place where we can really be vulnerable, the one place where we can be comfortable, the one place where we can be naked without fear is in the presence of Christ. We must come to understand that even though we have a built-in antipathy and fear toward the Holy One, and even though we recognize that we are unholy, in Christ we are welcome. We are welcomed into fellowship by Christ because Christ has paid the price for us to be welcomed. And so today, as we close with the Lord's Supper, let me tell you something about the Lord's Supper, about communion. I don't know if you've thought about it this way before. This is, this is what everyone acknowledges who comes to the Lord's table. Okay. When you walk up to this table, you are making an open admission in front of this entire church family that you are pervasively sinful. That's the first thing you're saying when you get up and you walk to this table. That you not only have a sinful nature, 
but you have committed sinful actions. You've thought sinful thoughts, and you've said sinful words, and you deserve sin's consequences of death and hell. But that you have trusted in the perfect life, atoning death, and hope-giving resurrection of Jesus for the full forgiveness and cleansing of your sin. That's what you say when you walk to this table. And that you are walking in the light with him and with us who have also made these same admissions. It's not a haphazard thing to walk to this table, and it is not a prideful thing to walk to this table. Heaven forbid it's an assumed thing to walk up to this holy table. So if all of that is true about you and your life, we invite you today to come and partake of the elements that represent the body, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ for you on your behalf for the forgiveness and cleansing of your sin. If those things have not been true of you up to this point, then we still offer you something very good. (laughs) We invite you to receive the free gift of salvation today in Christ. To pray, either there in your seat, or even if you feel led to come and pray with one of the elders who are up front, and to pray simply to confess your utter sinfulness and your need for Jesus' saving grace and mercy, you can receive that today by faith. You can. Or finally, if you're a believer and this morning you are troubled by some sin in your life or maybe some unreconciled relationship, please feel free to also use this opportunity to pray and to ask the Lord how you might make that right and continue walking in the light with him. Hear the words of Christ on this matter as I close. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Has God done that work in you? Has he done that saving work in you, that good work? Then we invite you to partake today of the Lord's Supper. If he's not done that work in you yet, but you have this feeling that you want him to, then we invite you. If you need help with that, we'd love to pray with you. I'm going to pray now, and then we'll partake of these elements. Father, God, thank you so much, God, that you have, you have made 
yourself clear. God, you have not hidden yourself, but you have revealed yourself in every conceivable way. Father, I pray this morning that there's anyone in this room who needs to begin living a life where they are walking in the light, taking that painful first few steps for the ultimate purpose of peace with you. God, that they would do that today. God, I pray that there would not be any hindrance this morning for men or women in this room. God, any preconceived notion, anything they think is between them and you, God, would you decimate that? You have accomplished the work. You have done everything. You have paid for our sins, past, present, and future. And you have invited us to receive grace. God, we know that there's no sin too bad. There's no darkness too dark for you. For darkness is as light to you, Father. And so I pray if anyone needs to come into your light this morning, that they would do that and begin living in the peace and the freedom that only you can give, in the spiritual rest that our souls crave, God. And for those who already have, Father, I pray that this would not be a time that's just monotonous, a time where we just do the thing we've always done. God, I pray that this time would be sacred to us, that we would remember your atoning death. We would remember the work you accomplished on our behalf, God, to secure our righteousness, to save us from our sin and from your just wrath, and to offer us the gift of eternal life. Jesus, thank you for standing before God the Father as though you were sinful like us, though you weren't, so that we can now stand righteous and blameless without fear before you and be called children of God. We love you, Lord. God, this is a huge text. I pray somehow I did it justice. God, I know I fall short of ever doing your word justice. You are the one who does the work. So God, I pray that you would minister to every heart in this room in all the ways that you need to do that. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.